This episode is brought to you by Taste Washington. With more than 235 wineries, 65 restaurants, and some of the nation's most talented chefs, Taste Washington is the ultimate taste test. Learn more at tastewashington.org. Welcome to Meet and Three, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup. I'm your host and HRN's executive director, Katie Mosman-Wadler. When we set out to create an episode celebrating Black History Month, we knew we didn't want to try to distill the entire meaning of Black history in America down to 20 minutes. Instead, we decided to narrow our focus. To talk about the process of how this episode came together, I'm here with our amazing intern and recent CUNY J School grad, Ariyama Long, who was the lead producer on this episode. Hi. So this episode was inspired by my friend Akeen, who founded New York African Restaurant Week. He reached out and asked me if we were doing anything for Black History Month, and I was like, we should probably make that happen. I'm like, let's dive in right here with things I think are often forgotten about and weird and uncomfortable. You know, black history is American history, but my culture doesn't start with American slavery. Slavery is not new, and we ignored the era between emancipation and civil rights as if it doesn't still affect us as a nation. And while it can feel like we're making progress towards racial equality, there have been many recent reminders that we're not there yet. It was only last year that the Senate finally and unanimously approved the 1918 bill making lynching a federal crime, and recent news reveals the prevalence of blackface around college campuses and beyond. It's all relevant, and our industry is affected too. The food media tend to forget people of color, women, and other underrepresented groups a lot. We're not pretending to combat or solve these problems in a single episode. We decided to focus today's meet and three on agriculture because I think honoring black farmers and black women in agriculture is important. What do you think about when you think about farmers? There's always this stereotypical white guy as the landowner. And there's this perception that black people hate nature and we all live in like giant masses in cities and don't exist anywhere else. Also, to remind people that healthy eating and farming is just as much a part of the legacy of the Black community as anything else. Like, there's plenty of people's grandparents that were out planting collard greens in the garden long before it was fashionable, like mine. Black farming isn't just slaves and plantations. So we hope you find today's episode thought-provoking. You may also be interested in checking out some of the series on HRN focused in representation in food media, including A Hungry Society and Food Without Borders, and take a scroll through our 10th anniversary Hall of Fame at heritageradionetwork.org slash hall of fame to hear more interviews with some of today's guests and other black farmers. Also, we've compiled a resource list in case you'd like to read up more on this topic. Look for the link in today's episode description. You'll hear from Ariyama again a bit later on with the tale of her freezing journey through Harlem. Now here's Nina Medvinskaya with our first story featuring HRN Hall of Famer and celebrity chef Carla Hall. For beloved TV chef Carla Hall, soul food is all about journeying back towards ancestral roots and away from culinary stereotypes. In her new book, Carla Hall's Soul Food, Carla traces soul food's history from Africa and the Caribbean to the American South, and she offers a fresh perspective on the cuisine. During a conversation with HRN's Speaking Broadly host, Dana Cowan, Carla shared how connecting with her roots informed her relationship with the often misunderstood Southern fare. 
Part of the journey was when I had my DNA done through African ancestry. And then when the results are revealed, you are like, oh. It's almost like you were adopted and meeting your parents. My mother's family came from Nigeria. They're a Yoruba. And not just Nigeria, but the tribe. My father's family came from the Bubi people from Bioko Island, which is off the coast of Cameroon. So that was a totally different result. For Carla, learning about her roots meant reflecting on their culinary heritage. I wanted to imagine what would my ancestors be eating if they were coming over today. And I couldn't have done this book five years ago. There are grains that are now showing up in markets and stores that weren't available or we didn't have access to, that I didn't even know. Staying true to her roots wasn't always easy for Carla. She came close to changing one of her most cherished recipes, her grandmother's hot water cornbread, after losing a cook-off to her co-star, Clinton Kelly, on ABC's The Chew. I decided to do my grandmother's braised collard greens with hot water cornbread. And the tasting table, they were the judges. And they overwhelmingly chose Clinton's cheesy broccoli cauliflower thing. I think I got one vote. I was so heartbroken. And so when I was doing this book, I said, I'm going to change the recipe so that people can get it. The day that we were shooting for the book, I'm like, what am I doing? Why am I changing my family's history for another culture. And it was as if my grandmother's spirit was like, what the heck are you doing? That was the start of me getting back to my culture. I knew that I had to come in and acknowledge this is part of my history. For Carla, writing about soul food means sharing the complex history that shaped it. But it's also about looking forward and wielding a brighter and more genuine path for soul food's accessibility in the States. When I think about where soul food is and is it accessible in the States, I think about doing a line of maybe farm to frozen soul food. And on that train of thought, my team, attorneys and agents are like, ah, oh, but the profit margins are really small. And I said, but I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing it because if I am trusted in the food community and if I had a food line with a major retailer, think about how I am able to change the lives of African-Americans in in this country. There's more encouraging news about food access for Black communities. That's why we were so excited to hear about Ariyama's visit to an urban youth farm in Harlem. It's negative six degrees and I'm outside. Today is January 15th, Martin Luther King's birthday. The wind is unkind, and a group of about 17 of us huddle on the corner of 135th Street and Malcolm X Boulevard, wearing every layer conceivable. We're about to brave the bitter cold for the next two hours for a historical walking tour of Harlem. I can't feel my face. This particular plot is called the Harlem Success Garden. Our tour guide, historian Ted Barrow, pauses at a small garden across the street from Henry H. Garnett Public And, you know, if you go there on, like, a spring day and you volunteer, you will be elbow deep in mulch. And, like, you know, he'll be too... We peer in at Harlem Grown Through the Fence, an urban youth farm and education initiative founded in 2011 by Tony Hillary. Its ground is hardened, the trees are bare, and due to the frigid temperature, everything's closed. Waiting for the promise of spring, I imagine. 
While Harlem Grown is building a cultural tradition around farming in New York City, their outreach coordinator, Gabriela Rodriguez, who has participated in food justice and youth education since high school, points out that black farmers have been at the center of urban farming for well over a century. There's Booker T. Watley, you know, he, he is kind of a pioneer of what today is known as CSA, so Community Supported Agriculture. He started that. Wally was born on an Alabama farm in 1915 and professor of agriculture by the 1970s. He was really interested in really efficient farming systems for, um, for sharecroppers. And at this time, um, there was more quote-unquote free, free labor happening. Um, but he was trying to make it as productive as possible for um, men of color and women of color to um, be farming and, and still making money, still making profit. So he was really invested in um, having that cash flow, right? So having community invest in their farms and people at that time were actually, you know, picking their own, their own produce. So that's where CSAs were, you know, kind of founded. And of course, there's... George Washington Carver. He's known as the peanut man. Um, he did support peanuts. He loved peanuts. But the real um, history of that is peanuts are a nitrogen-fixing plant, and so they're really good for soil. So at that time, cotton and soils were being depleted, um, and cotton also required, again, a lot of free labor. Um, and he was moving away both from monocultures, so moving us into a more sustainable system, just really trying to support um, black men at the time who, who were sharecroppers. Carver was a cook, botanist, and professor that championed the farm-to-table idea of agriculture as a more sustainable way of living before anyone else. One of the original food activists, if you will. I think that there's a lot of unknown history, even in black communities. Um, again, I think that at this point, the image of farming media has done a really good job of painting a picture of a very white um, agricultural system. Um, in a lot of ways it is, but in a lot of ways it's not. And I think it's, um, it's so important that we acknowledge those histories. And black history, again, just in the food movement, even beyond those, those pioneers, our everyday acts of, of food sovereignty are really important. It isn't necessarily that people aren't interested or don't care about their health. It's really about agency and the ability um, to eat well and to know where your food is coming from. Gabby works closely with Harlem Grown founder Tony Hillary to make sure that that happens. A lot of kids don't necessarily understand that their food grows from the ground. So um, one day he kind of just picked up and he had every student plant a seed. Um, there was an abandoned garden um, across the street and it was, you know, the kids would say it was haunted. So he brought them all in that space and let them all plant a seed. Um, and that's kind of how Harlem Grown was born. Even though it's a struggle to look past the cold season at the moment, Gabby paints a picture of vitality and camaraderie in the garden. It has grown to 12 other sites and revitalized abandoned lots in Harlem that have planted seeds in their community for healthy eating. All of our, all of our kids that we serve, they get to see the whole process. They see their food scraps turn to compost. They see that compost go back in the soil. They plant that seed, they watch that thing grow, and then they eat it. We, we do cooking as well with them. So they get to see a real full cycle, um, which, like I said before, anyone in an urban environment, it's hard to find that. But especially in places like Harlem that are historically 
disenfranchised, disinvested communities. It's about empowerment and you know community resilience building through this work. Um, food is kind of just a vehicle that happened to work. These urban farms bridge the gap between nature and concrete, giving primarily Black and Latino children pre-K through fifth grade a chance to grow. They also offer summer youth employment programs for kids aged 7 to 14. Harlem's community may be changing, but at its core is an unshakable network of cultural gardens. Volunteer hours are every Saturday from April to October, and all the produce at the farmer's market is free. Our next story is about a woman who's drawing lessons from history to make farming more equitable. Here's Kevin Wheeler. For Leah Penniman, farming is a means to reclaim history. She's doing that by teaching and using farming methods pioneered by African and indigenous farmers. Farming methods often incorrectly credited to European invention. Penniman is the farmer, teacher, and activist who founded Soulfire Farm, a Rensselaer County farm and nonprofit organization. The farm is dedicated to fighting racism and injustice in food systems, especially in those that serve communities of color. Lisa Held spoke with Penniman on episode 338 of The Farm Report, where she read from her new book entitled Farming While Black. She also talked about the relationship many African Americans have with farming and agriculture. While farming was initially healing for me, for many African heritage people, it is a triggering and re-traumatizing experience. Almost without exception, when I ask Black visitors to Soulfire Farm what they first associate with farming, they respond, slavery or plantation. As my friend Chris Bolden Newsom says, the field was the scene of the crime. Hundreds of years of enslavement have devastated our sacred connection to lands and overshadowed thousands of years of our noble, autonomous farming history. That history, that connection to the land, wasn't always visible for Penniman. At conferences and other meetings, she saw that the organic farming community was predominantly white. You know, I used to go to the Northeast Organic Farming Association conferences Mm. as a teen. It was super white. I could count on my two hands the number of of people who appeared to be POC, people of color. Mm. And so I literally would go around little slips of paper and and say, hey, meet at one o'clock under this tree so we can talk. Because of that lack of diversity, the African-American and indigenous impacts on organic farming went unrecognized. When I was first starting out farming and getting into the organic world and all the conferences and books, everything was so whitewashed, you know, all the presenters and the authors. And I really thought that these methods like raised beds and cover cropping were European or ahistorical and uh, considered quitting farming because no one looked like me and I was being a traitor to my people. It's what it felt like. Penniman eventually learned the truth from community activist Karen Washington. Washington told her that, in fact, many common agricultural practices used today have African and indigenous roots. This knowledge inspired Penniman to write Farming While Black and shape the educational offerings at Soulfire Farm. I started doing research for the curriculum for our training programs at Soulfire based on this hypothesis that, you know, perhaps every single sustainable farming practice that we engage has indigenous or African roots. So let's start with that and see what happens. Let me like research raised beds. Let me research terraces, polycropping, livestock. And I haven't found an exception yet. So, so far that's borne out. 
Um, and it's not that anyone told us that. It's more like we adopted these practices and then we looked at where they really came from. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Taste Washington. A food and wine lover's wonderland, Taste Washington offers the most wine and food from one single place in one single place, including samples from more than 35 wineries, 65 restaurants, 60 exhibitors, and some of the nation's most talented chefs. Each spring, attendees can drink and eat their heart out over four days brimming with specially curated events that highlight the best of Washington State. The result of a continued partnership between Visit Seattle and Washington State Wine, Taste Washington is taking place March 28th to 31st, 2019. Mark your calendar for this year's lineup featuring the Red and White Party, Taste Washington on the Farm, the New Vintage, Seminars, the Grand Tasting, and Sunday Brunch. Learn more at tastewashington.org. Welcome back to Meet and Three. We couldn't present this episode without addressing why so few farms are owned by people of color. Dylan Hoyer has our final story this week. About a century ago, 14% of U.S. farms were owned by African-American families. Today, only 1% of rural landowners are African-American. In the years after the Civil War, freed slaves acquired 15 million acres of land. Yet, over the course of the 20th century, land ownership became unsustainable for black farmers. Industrialization and migration to northern states. Matthew Rayford and Tamara Jones joined forces to talk about reversing this trend at the Chef's Collaborative Summit in 2017. Matthew is the owner of The Farmer in the Larder, and Tamara is the executive director of SAFON, the Southeastern African American Farmers Organic Network. My story does not start with me cooking. My story starts in 1812 with Jupiter Gilliard being born a slave in South Carolina, making his way down in 1874 after the Civil War to Brunswick, Georgia, carving out 476 acres of land, paying $9 in taxes in it, and then creating what is now Gilliard Farms and the farm that my sister and I are trying to reclaim and bring back up to a much larger point. When I decided I wanted to come home for farming, my grandmother explains to me, well, I explained to her what organic farming is and what sustainability is all about. And her response to me is, so baby, you gonna go to learn from some white folk what we already know how to do. Why are we being certified for something that we've always done? Weren't allowed to buy fertilizer. Had no money in the first place. And to now have to pay thousands of dollars to become certified or to get into certain markets. I need to connect with someone to explain that to me. Safon was founded around 10 years ago by Cynthia Hayes and the work of Dr. Wusu Bendele. They saw this burgeoning organic market and saw that black farmers in the South were really not participating or positioned to participate. At the time, there were no, I think only one 
a certified black farmer that they could find in, in the southern states. And so that. they began offering a training and leading black farmers through the process of getting certified. We formulated this conversation around a notion of strategies of resistance. The fact is that for some of our communities, black farming communities, we are very consciously aware that we are trying to build and thrive and survive in a system that has historically been actively positioned against us. American capitalism tells us it's all about the individual entrepreneur. And what our history and our experience shows is that our greatest power for individual success comes when we tap into our collective efforts. To learn more about Safon's current efforts to enable a more just food system, you can find the full conversation between Matthew Rayford and Tamara Jones on episode 82 of HRN On Tour. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Special thanks this week to Dylan Hoyer, Ariama Long, Nina Medvinskaya, and Kevin Wheeler for their reporting. Meet and Three is produced by Hannah Forden, Liza Hamm, Kat Johnson, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with lead production for this episode by Ariama Long. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio.